The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The not that there's anything wrong with that defense. This is Thursday, August 2nd, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through that PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. I did not do that thing you said I did, and even if I had done it, it wouldn't have been illegal, and even if it were illegal, you can't subpoena me or even question me about it, and you certainly can't charge me with a crime. That appears to be the Trump defense in the Russia investigation, and it does not sound like the defense of an innocent man. We'll get to his new $100 billion tax cut for the rich and his latest blow to Obamacare. But first, Trump has now joined his lawyer in claiming that collusion is not a crime. To Trump, the good news is the word collusion does not appear in the United States Criminal Code. The bad news for Trump is collusion is a real word. It means conspiracy. In the legal world, it means a series of conspiracies. And conspiracy is, in the United States, criminal code. I don't even know if that's a crime, colluding with Russians. Those are the words of the lawyer who's defending Donald Trump against a rising tide of trouble from their Russia investigation. Moving the goalposts has been a frequently used tactic of Trump's Russia defense, and Rudy Giuliani had just moved them out of the stadium. Once a federal prosecutor, Giuliani was saying he doesn't know if colluding with Russia would be a criminal act. Giuliani also proposed that unless Trump were to have paid the Russians to interfere, there was no collusion. The Justice Department considers collusion with Russia to be illegal, and it's using that very charge, using that very word in its case against Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort. Collusion is not a crime, said Giuliani. The Trump camp has also argued it's not possible for a president to obstruct justice because he is justice. The two things special counsel Robert Mueller is investigating are, coincidentally, collusion and obstruction. In that obstruction case, we've learned that Mueller is now looking over Trump's tweets, what was said and when, about multiple aspects of the Russia probe. In other words, Mueller may see tweets he considers part of an effort to obstruct his investigation, which Mueller has the legal authority to do. Yesterday, Trump gave Mueller new evidence of obstruction in a tweet that said, quote, Attorney General Jeff Sessions should stop this rigged witch hunt right now. And Trump provoked Mueller by calling the special counsel conflicted while his old campaign manager was on trial. And that campaign chairman leads to Russia. So Trump is now calling Bob Mueller's prosecution of Paul Manafort a hoax. Trump had been warned by those around him that he could be putting himself in legal jeopardy with his tweets. It appears they were right. Mueller said to be examining what Trump tweeted about Attorney General Jeff Sessions and when he tweeted it, not just yesterday, but throughout all of this. Mueller, of course, is looking at Trump's tweets about former FBI Director James Comey and precisely when they were tweeted. The timing is key because the tweets appeared at about the same time Trump was privately pressuring Comey and Sessions to minimize the investigation. Was it in the name of obstructing justice? Were two key witnesses being intimidated by the president? Both of these questions are being considered by Bob Mueller. And even if no single event proves to be obvious obstruction... Together, they represent a pattern of behavior, an approach often used by prosecutors to make their cases. Mueller wants to make sure he's been over all the tweets before he sits down with a face-to-face interview with Trump himself, if he does. Trump's lawyers are still insisting that Trump shouldn't have to answer any of Mueller's questions. Trump still wants to, to clear his name and end the witch hunt. After seven months of negotiations, Mueller has now made a new offer, an offer to limit the number of questions put to Trump and to allow some of those questions to be answered in writing. But Mueller still wants a face-to-face. The Washington Post today reports that Mueller wants to ask Trump about obstruction of justice. And that's one of the things Trump's lawyers say he won't be talking about. In the meantime, Trump's doing his talking online. Cops, prosecutors, judges, and juries know not to trust a witness who changes their story. Two years ago, the Trump campaign denied the claim of a Russian official that Russians had been in touch with the Trump entourage. It never happened, said Trump's then-communications director, Hope Hicks. There was no communication between the campaign and any foreign entity, she said, her public comments frequently dictated to her by Trump himself. 
And a year ago this month, we learned of the Trump Tower meeting between the Russians, Trump's son, Trump's son-in-law, and Trump's campaign manager to get supposed dirt on Hillary Clinton. Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow flatly denied the president was aware of that meeting and had no part in drafting his son's first public statement about that meeting. The statement said the meeting was about the adoptions of Russian children by U.S. citizens, a program that ended after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then we learned that Trump Sr. had signed off on the statement, and Sekulow responded, well, that's incorrect. But it wasn't. In the months that followed, we learned that Trump had not only signed off on his son's statement, he dictated it aboard Air Force One. Trump's story then changed again. With a White House statement, the president weighed in as any father would based on the limited information that he had. This past week, we heard from former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen that Trump did know about the Trump Tower meeting beforehand and gave it the go-ahead. Cohen has no evidence to support that, and Trump denies the claim, but Cohen says he's willing to tell that and more to Robert Mueller, who knows about the multiple calls Donald Trump Jr. made to a same blocked phone number just before the meeting. Even Trump advisor Steve Bannon says there's zero chance that Don Jr. did not walk these Russians up to his father's office. But Robert Mueller does have evidence, an email to Trump Jr. promising documents and information, sensitive information at a very high level, part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump, end quote. Cohen's claim that Trump knew was the bombshell of the week. It meant that if Cohen's claims are true, Donald J. Trump did conspire and collude with the Russian government to tip a presidential election in his favor. And if that's the case, we are now mired in the biggest political scandal in American history under a president elected illegitimately. For now, there is no proof of collusion, but the circumstantial evidence is at this point overwhelming. Just before Trump took office, the Washington Post reported that the incoming national security advisor, Mike Flynn, had spoken with the Russian ambassador about the same time that the Obama administration had slapped sanctions on Russia for interfering in the 2016 presidential campaign. Incoming White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer was at that time denying reports that Flynn and the Russian had discussed Obama's sanctions. Six weeks later, the Post reported that Flynn had discussed sanctions in that phone call to the Kremlin's ambassador. Fake news, said Trump. It's all fake news, he said. When Flynn flipped this past December, he made it clear he had discussed with others on Team Trump what to say in that phone call with the Russian ambassador. When Trump invited that ambassador and Russia's foreign minister into the Oval Office last year, he showed them classified information, according to the Washington Post. Trump's then national security advisor responded, the story as reported is false. And then Trump changed his story again, admitting he had shared some classified stuff with the Russian officials. As president, he tweeted, I wanted to share with Russia, which I have the absolute right to do. And in so doing, Trump had accidentally outed the Israeli source on which U.S. intelligence had relied to bring forth such information. We didn't know that for sure at first. That's what NBC News had reported. And then Trump accidentally confirmed NBC's reporting. On a trip to Israel, Trump said, quote, Folks, folks, just so you understand, I never mentioned the word or the name Israel during that conversation. But now he had. And then there was the pre-election report that the National Enquirer had paid Playboy's Karen McDougal for her story about a 10-month love affair with Trump shortly after he had married Melania. The Enquirer, sitting on the exclusive rights to that story, never published it, presumably as a favor to the candidate it had favored throughout the campaign. We have no knowledge of this, said the president's then spokeswoman, Hope Hicks. The Michael Cohen tape released last week proves that claim to also be untrue. So what have we got to pay for this? 150 asked Trump on the tape, proving that Trump was not only aware of the payment, he knew the number, 150, right on the nose. No, the president said twice when reporters aboard Air Force One asked if he knew about the hush money paid to porn star Stormy Daniels for her claims of a one-night stand with Trump right after Melania had given birth to their son. No, I don't know, said Trump, who would then again change his story at the start of the summer. Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani admitted that Trump had reimbursed Michael Cohen for his $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels. For all the news that has broken over the course of this administration, for all the claims Trump and his people have made only to retract, for all the claims of fake news, the news has consistently turned out to be true. 
It's the president who isn't. Trump's campaign manager during a pivotal time in the 2016 race, Paul Manafort, now gets out of jail almost every day to go to court. Manafort's on trial for making millions of dollars from a pro-Russian political party in Ukraine and then hiding that money from the IRS. And about while, he bought a lot of custom-made suits and luxurious homes, fancy cars, and season tickets to the Yankees games. The first of two trials for Manafort. This trial is about the money he made and spent before he went to work at no salary for the Trump campaign. It's about the laundering of over $18 million. The prosecutor says he doubts anyone on his side will even mention Russia during this trial. The campaign is also not a focus of this trial. It'll barely come up, except that Manafort did get a multi-million dollar loan from a bank that could barely afford it, run by a man who thought it might land him a job as Secretary of the Army. No, this case is about offshore accounts and concealed income to launder the tens of millions of dollars Manafort made from that Russian-backed Ukrainian political party. A possible witness against Manafort in one of his trials is his longtime partner Richard Gates, who's already pleaded guilty while Manafort steadfastly pleads not guilty, risking life in prison over helping Mueller get to the bottom of the collusion story. As the judge in this case made clear from the start, everybody knows this case is really about putting the screws to Manafort to get to Trump. And that's what Manafort's second trial will be about starting in September, a trial that's expected to be connected to this one. There's a reason they call the federal court in the Eastern District of Virginia the rocket docket. Things move quickly there. The Manafort trial opened Tuesday, lickety split. The jury was seated, the charges were read, and the lawyers for both sides made their opening statements. It was as dramatic as it was quick. The government says Manafort lived high, as if he were above the law, and lied about the money he'd made illegally and failed to report to the IRS. The crux of the government's case is that Manafort lied. Manafort's lawyers are pointing at Manafort's former business partner, calling Rick Gates the liar and claiming that Manafort's only mistake was trusting Gates, who they say is the real guilty party. Manafort is eligible for up to 305 years in prison, but prosecutors say they would settle for 8 to 10. After 10 years, Manafort would be 79 years old. But for now, Manafort is still living high for a guy who's sleeping in the Otisville Correctional Facility. It would be a huge embarrassment to the government if anything happened to Manafort while he stays for now in such a tough jail. So they've moved him into a private, self-contained living unit that is larger than the other cells. Paul Manafort has his own bathroom and private shower. He has his own personal telephone and a desk for working on his defense. He doesn't have to wear a prison uniform. And according to a former lawyer who spent a year and a half in that facility, the other prisoners will treat Manafort like royalty. Inmates are going to be impressed by him. He's a big name, says the ex-con lawyer, adding, they're going to try to buddy up to him because they figure he has money. He does, or did. Manafort's jail is not far from one of his luxurious homes, just down the street, valued at over $2 million. Mr. President, are you worried about what Michael Cohen is about to say to prosecutors? Did Michael Cohen betray you, Mr. President? They are perfectly reasonable questions asked by a reporter at a perfectly reasonable time. And White House correspondent Caitlin Collins was asking not just on behalf of her network, CNN, but as a pool reporter representing nearly all the major TV networks. It was all reasonable because reporters typically do ask questions at a photo op, and Trump, much to the distress of his aides, often sticks around to answer those questions at length. But not on that day. Not with that question. Trump ignored the question and allowed himself to be spirited away. Ms. Collins was then summoned to the West Wing, where she was chastised for asking an inappropriate question at an inappropriate time. And then they told her she could not attend a Rose Garden ceremony later that day. The rest of the media would be there, but CNN's Caitlin Collins would not. She was being punished for doing her job as a journalist. A whole range of journalists subjected, from the White House Correspondents Association to, of all places, Fox News, the president's favorite source of news. Fox News President Jay Wallace said, quote, We stand in strong solidarity with CNN for the right to full access for our journalists as part of a free and unfettered press. This wasn't the first time. Then at a campaign stop in Tampa, the Trump crowd increasingly populated by conspiracy and extremist groups chanted, CNN sucks at anchor Jim Acosta, 
who worried somebody might get hurt. And the crowd raised their middle fingers at all the reporters inside their corral at the Trump rally. They also worried somebody might get hurt. The Trump administration, in its short history, has a long history of revoking press credentials and the like out of spite or revenge. Why do we have them in here, asked Trump of one of his aides. He's banished individual reporters from the press plane when he travels, and he's kept them out of his rallies. The Washington Post reports through its sources that Trump has vented furiously and often about the impertinence and lack of respect from these reporters. You know, of course, about the scores of tweets about fake news and how reporters are dishonest people. He angrily critiques news coverage nearly every day and has mused about ending reporters' access to the White House. But it wasn't until this past week that the Trump staff finally let Trump have it his way and actually gave a reporter a timeout. But it's also part of a trend with repeated attacks on CNN and NBC where Trump once hosted a reality game show. He calls the free press the enemy of the people. And then over the weekend, we learned of a meeting nearly two weeks ago between Trump and the publisher of the New York Times, the news outlet he's referred to repeatedly as the failing New York Times, when in fact, its readership has surged by two-thirds during Trump's presidency. It was a private, off-the-record meeting in which Times publisher Arthur G. Sulzberger apparently tried to persuade Trump that his attacks on the media are deeply troubling, divisive, and increasingly dangerous. Somebody might get hurt. But Trump broke the silence about that meeting in another Twitter tirade this past Sunday, accusing journalists of being unpatriotic and of endangering lives. Where was it he'd just heard something like that? Once Trump had revealed the meeting and what was discussed, Times publisher Arthur Sulzberger shared with readers the detailed notes he had taken during his meeting with Trump. They included his warning to the president that his verbal attacks on reporters in this country were prompting violence against reporters in other countries. But from his New Jersey golf club, Trump tweeted that you should not know what's going on inside your government. Quote, when the media, driven insane by their Trump derangement syndrome, reveals internal deliberations of our government, it truly puts the lives of many, not just journalists, at risk. Very unpatriotic, wrote Trump, adding, I will not allow our great country to be sold out by anti-Trump haters in the dying newspaper industry. Last week, in a speech to a Veterans of Foreign Wars convention in Kansas City, Trump pointed at the reporters who were there to cover the event. Don't believe the crap you see from these people, the fake news. And then came the kicker, Trump adding, just remember, what you're seeing and what you're reading is not happening. Trump continues chipping away at the nation's institutions, including journalism, despite pleas from the media to stop. What you're seeing, reading, and hearing is happening and it will continue to be reported. Our nation's free press wasn't the only target for Trump's Twitter tantrum over the weekend. He stepped up his online anger against special counsel Robert Mueller, and he threatened a government shutdown if he didn't get the money for his border wall. In other words, Trump was pushing buttons manically, pushing buttons that would fire up his voter base for a midterm election that might lead to his impeachment, hot buttons including immigration, the mainstream media, and attacking anyone who threatens his presidency. He could use the help. A Marist poll for NPR shows two-thirds of Democrats enthusiastic about voting this November, compared to fewer than half of all Republicans. Trump is running scared, promising to be on the campaign trail for Republican candidates six or seven days a week for two straight months as the campaign heats up. Russia's cyber attack on the United States continues, meanwhile, and it's not limited to just our elections. They've gotten into our power grid They've gotten into the switches that can turn out the lights on millions of Americans. They haven't flipped any switches yet, but Russian cyber fingerprints have been left on those switches. Homeland Security reports that over the past year, Russian military intelligence has infiltrated the control rooms of hundreds of power plants across the U.S. At the moment, the Russian cyber attack is far more focused on our power grid than it is on our elections. Russia's cyber-political efforts may be somewhat muted right now because of the recent indictment of a dozen of its military intelligence officers by special counsel Robert Mueller, but at least two congressional campaigns have already been hacked and the election is still a little over three months away. In the meantime, did the lights just flicker? But Trump and Vladimir Putin are still making nice 
Now that Trump has postponed his invitation for Putin to come to the U.S., Putin has invited Trump to visit Moscow. Trump postponed their follow-up meeting to next year when he presumes the, quote, witch hunt will be ended. That, we now know, was actually Putin's suggestion. Putin, likewise, says he'd like Trump to visit Moscow, adding that, quote, the conditions need to be right. And separate from the Mueller investigation, federal prosecutors in New York may be about to uncover Trump's tax returns and more. The feds looking into the financial dealings of former Trump personal lawyer Michael Cohen have asked to interview Alan Weisselberg. Weisselberg has for decades handled the money for both the Trump organization and the Trump household. He's the man who's written the checks and paid the bills. And now federal investigators would like to speak with him as part of their investigation into Michael Cohen. We don't know how firmly they asked, whether there was a subpoena, but we know they asked. And it means the feds, separate and apart from the Mueller investigation, are examining Donald Trump's finances. Those finances are the red line Trump had warned Mueller not to cross. Mueller, not the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. But it has, according to the New York Times, set up alarm bells in the Trump organization and its family of companies, and all because of that secret recording released last week of a conversation between Trump and Cohen. They were discussing that payoff to Karen McDougal when Cohen said, I've spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up. And now the feds are talking to Alan. Cheap health care and a new tax break for the rich. Facebook tries to make nice 3D guns and more after this. More and more of these days, we're asked to pay for something we used to get free, the news. This news comes to you with no paywall. It's just free. So please do your online shopping by using and bookmarking that Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a little commission from Amazon when you do that, so it's very helpful to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, please support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. Thank you. As if the recent round of tax cuts weren't enough, and in spite of a fast-growing deficit headed for the trillion-dollar mark, Trump is thinking about bypassing Congress to give another $100 billion tax cut to the rich. 86% of the benefits of his plan go to the top 1%, the American oligarchs. He plans to do this by urging the Treasury Department to use its powers to set cost-of-living indices to rewrite the rules about the capital gains tax. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says he's on it, studying its cost and the effect it might have on the nation's economic growth. Economists are already saying it won't help the economy. And the cost is mighty, leaving the government $102 billion more in debt with a deficit that's already growing thanks to the recent Trump-Publican tax cuts. It also isn't clear if what Trump and Mnuchin are doing is legal, especially the part about bypassing Congress, whose duty it is to control the money coming in and the money going out. Even some Republicans are objecting. The George W. Bush administration considered a similar move in 1992, but put it aside, determining it would be executive branch overreach to do such a thing. But that hasn't deterred this president, nor his Treasury Secretary, even as the deficit grows faster than expected at about $100 billion more per year. Thanks to the first round of Trump tax cuts, the government took in the least amount of tax money it's collected since the heart of the Great Recession. The deficit is now more than double what it was during Obama's second term. When economic growth hit a flukish high note last week, Trump was on the South Lawn declaring, quote, once again, we are the economic envy of the entire world. Trump has also backed down on some of the new sanctions against European countries, and that could help avoid an all-out trade war with Europe. But Trump's metals tariffs remain in place, and that continues to be an additional source of tension with our allies. For those metals tariffs, the European Union has promised new tariffs on Harley-Davidson's, Levi's, and bourbon, threatening American jobs and companies. Quoting the EU negotiator, we can also do stupid. Some Republicans who worried Trump was reckless with his tariffs say it now appears he knows what he's doing. Farmers, meanwhile are concerned that Trump's $12 billion aid package for farmers hurt by his trade war is a kind of signal from the Trump administration that his tariffs and their suffering may continue for a while. Farmers are to get their relief money just before the November elections. But Trump has more than doubled down on his trade war with China. That 10% tariff on $200 billion in Chinese goods 
just jumped to 25%. That's an increase for Trump's latest round of Chinese tariffs, this time affecting fruits and vegetables, purses and baseball gloves, raincoats and refrigerators, to name a few. An earlier round on $34 billion in Chinese goods was already at 25%. In his latest move, Trump's turned up the heat on China and escalated his trade war. A Trump tariff on $16 billion in Chinese goods was due to go into effect this week, meaning Americans will start paying higher prices for those goods and others very soon. Trump's tariffs will soon affect $250 billion in merchandise we buy from China. Cheaper health insurance is on the way, though, thanks to the Trump administration. The downside is it's junk insurance, inadequate, incomplete health care coverage at prices that could drive the Affordable Care Act's marketplace out of business. Trump's bargain plans don't have the free preventive health care, zero pregnancy coverage, and nothing for mental health, things that are required in the ACA marketplace. And unlike Obamacare coverage, these new junk policies will be available all year long. You get what you pay for. Facebook tried to redeem its sullied name this week by announcing it had tracked down a new covert propaganda campaign aimed at the U.S. midterm election. As in 2016, it's a campaign to spread divisive political messages and was trying to coordinate live protests in New York and D.C. scheduled for next week. One of the events was called Trump Nightmare Must End NYC and another called No to Unite the Right To. There were also posts about women's rights, Native American rights, all among the three dozen fake accounts Facebook says it has now shut down. Facebook says the activity is consistent with what it saw around the 2016 election. The tracking and stopping of this latest disinformation effort is getting Facebook praise at a time it sorely needed it. The screws were already tightening on Facebook after its role in the Russia propaganda campaign of 2016. Its CEO had been dragged before Congress to answer hard questions about the company's lack of response to and the lack of forthrightness about the misuse of its data by Cambridge Analytica. The Federal Trade Commission is investigating Facebook over that, and Facebook may be hit with new government regulations backed by Democrats and Republicans. European nations are already imposing new rules on Facebook, and Facebook continued to be two-faced. Take, for example, the conservative conspiracy theory that survivors of the Valentine's Day massacre at a high school in Parkland, Florida, were not victims at all, but actors hired to advocate for gun control. Facebook seemed to respond in the right way, calling such claims abhorrent and a violation of Facebook's community standards and promising to remove posts that suggest such a conspiracy. But over the past week, two videos appeared on Facebook from the alt-right outlet InfoWars, its founder, Alex Jones, wildly claiming a cover-up about Parkland. The caption on the screen read, Are child actors being used to push gun control in Florida shooting? Well, Facebook says it's seen the video and found that it's not in violation of its so-called community standards, the ones it had just said prohibit such false and abhorrent speech. InfoWars and Facebook have done well by each other financially over the past year with 92 million InfoWars views. Also this past week, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg tried to walk back his remark that Holocaust deniers were not necessarily trying to deceive other people, which is why their posts have not been removed. And then things got worse at Facebook. Oddly, it wasn't Facebook's many misdeeds that made things worse. It was a lack of new subscribers and the gargantuan expense of patching its many security problems. When stockholders caught wind, many of them bailed, and the value of Facebook stock dropped 20% in a single day. It was one of the biggest one-day losses in Wall Street history, Facebook losing the entire value of McDonald's, or 3M, in one day. Facebook's value had dropped by $119 billion inside 24 hours. And the size of that drop indicates this is not just a passing panic, but a real concern, an ongoing concern about Facebook's future. At this point, Facebook's very business model is the target of skepticism. Facebook has weathered privacy controversies since its inception in a college dorm room in 2004. But now it also has a PR problem. Celebrities are abandoning Facebook. Young people already had. New customers have become harder to get. A delete Facebook hashtag spreads on Twitter. But the same doubts 
have been expressed about Twitter. Facebook's stock value began to slip nearly a month ago after the Washington Post reported that Facebook had been deleting suspicious accounts at a record pace at the risk of shrinking its user numbers. Twitter had also been used in the 2016 disinformation campaign by Russia. And the day after the Facebook stock drop, Twitter stock dropped as well and just as dramatically. Twitter actually lost a million users now that it's deleting fake and suspicious accounts. Earlier this month, the Washington Post reported Twitter has suspended the accounts at a rate of about a million a day. Twitter was expecting to lose through this purge up to 9 million users, and that's when Twitter stock fell 21%. And now the tech losses have spread to other tech stocks. The Nasdaq index dropped for three straight days, losing nearly 4% of its value. By Monday evening, Facebook had dropped another 2%, beyond the 19% it had lost late last week. Twitter was down another 8% on top of its 21. Amazon and Google were down by around 2% each. Netflix was down 5 Game Factory Electronic Arts fell by nearly 6%. And it's all about lost business, privacy, and the cost of fixing it all. As Trump and Putin struggle to meet again, it's already time to reflect on Trump's very proud accomplishment of a meetup with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Trump's purpose was to get North Korea to end its nuclear and missile programs. He's since been criticized for making concessions to North Korea and getting nothing but the apparent remains of 55 American soldiers in return. Trump returned from the Kim summit, declaring that Americans could sleep well at night, knowing that North Korea was, and I quote, no longer a nuclear threat. Since then, not only has North Korea done nothing to cut back its nuclear missile program, it has stepped it up, according to U.S. intelligence. And now U.S. intelligence adds some urgency to that, with the news that the North now appears to be building new ballistic missiles in the same facility where it's done most of its nuclear weapons work. We believe North Korea is building one or two new liquid-fueled intercontinental ballistic missiles near its capital of Pyongyang. And we have reports that North Korea is upgrading its only official nuclear enrichment site and speeding up production at other secret sites. But Trump says you can rest well. And now Trump wants to meet with the president of Iran a country he's provoked by withdrawing from the global nuclear weapons deal and provoked further by punishing countries that do business with Iran. But as he wanted to do with Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin, Trump wants to sit down with Hassan Rouhani, the president of Iran. At a news conference, Trump said he would agree to such a meeting with no preconditions, a promise that was immediately contradicted by Trump Secretary of State Mike Pompeo a proposal that shocked the U.S. intelligence community. But Iran said it had no interest in a Rouhani-Trump meeting, and the Trump administration then announced that the meeting probably wouldn't happen. But he tried. In the meantime, Democratic and Republican senators have joined forces to keep the United States in NATO, what with a president who's antagonized those allies, even threatening to withdraw from the defense group. A bipartisan bill would keep a president from pulling out of NATO without Senate approval first. Two Democrats and two Republicans have sponsored the bill, including Virginia's Tim Kaine and Arizona's John McCain. It's a gift from the Trump administration to terrorists and criminals. Now anyone could get their very own gun that has no serial number and requires no registration and cannot be sensed by a metal detector. All they need is a 3D printer, which range in price from $150 to $1,500 for consumers. Amazon's choice is $350. These guns could even be produced in large quantities by terrorists or criminals or deeply misguided Americans. No background checks necessary. The Justice Department decided late last week to drop the Obama administration court fight that had been keeping these ghost guns off the market, mostly. But since the Justice Department's announcement of that decision, a website that offers the blueprints for everything from handguns to AR-15 had already published them. The Justice Department said the blueprints could go online this week, but a company that offers the plans had them up last Friday as soon as a federal judge in Texas denied a restraining order to keep those plans from going online. And by Monday, a 1,000 people had already downloaded the AR-15 blueprints. By Tuesday, 2,500 gun plans had been downloaded. And now, they're out there forever. 
Nine states have filed a lawsuit to stop the distribution of these gun-making instructions. Trump tweeted what seemed to be mild reservations about the availability of 3D-printed guns, but with no firm resolve to stop them. The State Department had already heard from the attorneys general in 21 states asking the Justice Department to reconsider. Tuesday evening, a federal judge blocked the distribution of the gun patterns, and the owner of the website took them down for now. But the genie and the ghost guns were already out of the bottle. Something interesting and perhaps encouraging is happening at the troubled Veterans Administration. Trump's latest choice to run the VA, Robert Wilkie, is weeding Trump loyalists out of the highest ranks of the agency. Those Trump loyalists who've lately been barking the orders had caused a devastating morale problem in an organization tasked with serving veterans. And the senators who voted to confirm Wilkie as the new Veterans Administrator made it clear to him they expected him to fix that morale problem. Wilkie went right to work weeding out those Trump loyalists who'd caused all that stress. Loyalists who'd gotten their jobs where career public servants had once worked, all because of a loyalty to Trump. The White House has no comment on Wilkie's house cleaning, but it could be better news for vets. A bit of change is also in the wind at the Environmental Protection Agency. There, acting administrator Andrew Wheeler announced he was reversing a decision by his predecessor, the infamous Scott Pruitt. On his way out the door, as a dozen scandal investigations closed in on him, Pruitt took one last punch at the environment he was supposed to have protected. On his way out, Pruitt removed new pending pollution controls from one class of diesel freight trucks known in the industry as gliders. Gliders use older engines that cough out dozens of times more soot and toxins than the more modern trucks. Well, the new guy, this Andrew Wheeler, made reversing Pruitt's order one of his first orders of business. Those glider trucks now will have to meet cleaner air rules, contrary to what Mr. Pruitt had said. It is not known whether Administrator Wheeler plans to reverse any other Pruitt orders that were equally devastating to the environment. There was another small victory for environmentalists this past week. The U.S. Supreme Court denied the Trump administration's request to stop a lawsuit demanding the government do more to fight climate change. The lawsuit had been filed by teenagers. Teenagers beat Trump in the first round of their battle to protect the planet, and they beat him in the United States Supreme Court. The teens say the government, by not fighting climate change, is violating the constitutional rights of future generations as well as their own. They're demanding the government implement a plan to phase out carbon emissions to stabilize the environment. The teens are getting professional help, of course, but they are not new to the legal system. It's not just because the Trump administration has propped up the fossil fuel industry while limiting growth in solar and other sources. These young people that actually first filed their lawsuit when Obama was president. In the meantime, the Trump EPA still poses new threats to the environment. The latest is Peter Wright, a lawyer from Dow Chemical. He's been brought on to run the nation's toxic cleanup program, known as the Superfund. It's the Superfund's job to clean up polluted rivers and chemical dumps, including one at Dow Chemical's headquarters in Michigan. While new Superfund manager Peter Wright was on the Dow payroll, the company was accused by one of its own engineers of submitting disputed data to the government and of dragging its feet on cleaning up its own toxic mess, which extended along rivers for 50 miles until it reached Lake Huron. Government regulators got substantiation from more than a dozen people, according to court records. EPA officials say Mr. Wright was hired because of his expertise in environmental law. And over at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, over at FEMA, the former head of human resources is accused of mass sexual harassment. The Washington Post says Corey Coleman used his position to staff FEMA with fraternity brothers and other friends and hired attractive women for them all to seduce. And then he transferred staff members from one department to another to keep fresh the supply of potential sex partners. Coleman acting deliberately, allegedly, to create a hostile work environment. Coleman himself is accused of making unwanted advances while he was in charge of HR, which is where sexual harassment complaints are supposed to be filed. Coleman's gone now, but he and his fraternity buddies had apparently run this scam for years. 
The Trump administration suffered another setback in court. A federal judge has greenlighted a lawsuit that hopes to keep the Trump Census Bureau from asking a question about citizenship. The census is supposed to be an actual headcount, not just a count of citizens, and those undocumented will be reluctant to fill out the form for fear of being deported. That will skew the results of the census, and not in a way that's helpful to citizens, lawmakers, or government officials. We can't budget for what we don't know we have, and we can't lie to ourselves about numbers. The Trump administration had asked a judge to dismiss the lawsuit to block the question. The judge refused. The case goes forward. And the judge says he noticed that Trump's Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, has changed his explanation as to why the citizenship question was being added. The judge also noted Trump's anti-immigration policies. The case goes forward. Over at Trump's Education Department, Cabinet Secretary Betsy DeVos is preparing to ease the rules that made for-profit colleges prove their graduate employment rates. That particular rule was put in place by the Obama administration to protect students from widespread fraud in the for-profit college industry. The New York Times has gotten hold of a draft that indicates the Trump-DeVos Education Department plans to scrap the rules altogether, as it has already done with Obama-era rules that provided debt relief to student borrowers. It's a new heyday for for-profit colleges, courtesy an education secretary who has long championed private education over public. Students are now back to being on their own. A disturbing footnote here that underscores the notion there's a price to pay for being a player in the Trump administration. Secretary DeVos has been the victim of vandalism. A person or persons who may have been captured on security video heavily damaged DeVos's 163-foot yacht from stem to stern and then cut it loose from the dock to set it adrift. It is or was a $40 million yacht docked in Michigan. But DeVos and her family do have nine other boats worth a total of $5.3 billion thanks to her dad, who started Amway. So, to sum up, vandalism is a crime and morally wrong. And Betsy DeVos still has plenty of smooth sailing in front of her. By the court deadline this evening, we are on track to reunite all eligible parents within ICE custody, said a Trump administration official one week ago today. Note the use of the word eligible. It's why hundreds of children are still separated from 700 parents, with nearly half of those parents, 400, already deported without their kids. The rest of the parents either couldn't prove their parenthood or were in some other kind of legal trouble. Trump officials also pulled off a bit of a shell game, switching from counting the parents to counting the kids. The effort to reunite the families the Trump administration had torn asunder was chaotic, amid changing, conflicting, and poorly communicated rules. Trump's program had been implemented suddenly, and Customs and Border Protection didn't have a category for separated children in its computer system. To reunite families, government workers, mostly from Health and Human Services, sorted through all the handwritten notes to try to find matches, because it wasn't in the computer. After learning of a group of immigrant kids who had been driven around all night in a government van, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said, clearly, this is gross incompetence and purposeful chaos. Families that have been released have been dumped at a Greyhound bus station that's become a kind of makeshift Ellis Island. Americans are pitching in where they can, raising money, helping these families, immigration lawyers volunteering their services. All of this chaos, the result of Trump's short-lived zero-tolerance policy. So Trump rattled his sabers again on Twitter Sunday, writing that he'd be willing to shut down the government if Democrats don't vote to support his border wall. It isn't going to happen, of course. Republicans aren't about to let the government shut down for a third time this year just because Trump is having a wall tantrum. It was just a reminder to Trump's base, really, that he's still tough on immigration, which he believes is the key to his political success. It's a base he hopes can protect him from a midterm election that might lead to his impeachment. That upcoming election is why Trump was here in Tampa, Florida this week, explaining we should have voter ID laws because you have to show an ID just to buy groceries. Salon.com's Bob Seska heard that all the way back in our Washington studio. Bob? 
Thank you, Buzz. Just about everyone in the resistance is talking about one thing right now, and it's not just the latest damage inflicted upon the nation by the clown dictator in the White House. We're all desperately spreading the word online and elsewhere that voting in the forthcoming election will decide whether democracy as we know it continues to exist here. Indeed, the get-out-the-vote effort has been underway since 11-9-16, and it's most decidedly a good thing, obviously. Ideally, though, we shouldn't have to be so proactive about voting in this country. It should be automatic, especially given the Trump crisis. We shouldn't have to insist or cajole our fellow citizens to get registered or to show up to vote on November 6th. We really have no choice, given how too many Americans take democracy for granted, refusing to even register. The fact that it's such a challenge to deliver enough Democratic voters works out quite well, though, for Donald Trump and his party. And not simply in terms of the potential outcome of the midterms. Generally speaking, when voter turnout is high, Republicans tend to lose elections. It's just the way it's always worked out, with some exceptions, of course. This well-known dynamic was famously highlighted by conservative kook Paul Weyrich back in 1980. How many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome? Good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Knowing this, it's not difficult to understand why albino sleestack Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans blocked a measure by the Democrats to increase funding for election security. The Wall Street Journal reported the amendment, which would have appropriated $250 million for grants to states through the Federal Election Assistance Commission, garnered 50 in favor to 47 opposed, largely on party lines and shy of the 60 votes needed to pass. Tennessee's Bob Corker was the only Republican to vote in support of that funding. The only reason to block such funding is, duh, the Weyrich factor. McConnell knows if elections are secure, more people will vote and Republicans will lose more seats. Even more so than supporting Trump, such a move is absolutely about party over nation. If any Republican who voted no tells you they cherish voting rights in this country, they're lying. Republicans have been suppressing the vote for decades using one trick or another. The most recent method is to allow Russia and other malicious actors to influence the outcome. Clearly the intention behind this week's Senate vote. It's preceded by the blight known as voter ID. In the last few weeks, we've observed an upswing in voter ID banter online. Fox News Channel's Tommy Lahren and Kurt Schlichter have each stupidly suggested that the best way to stop Russia is to implement voter ID, as if the Russians weren't attacking us from the safety of Russian soil and not in line at your polling place. Donald Trump himself made a pitch for voter ID while delivering one of his endless cocaine rants in Florida. Biff noted the time has come for voter ID and that we need photo IDs to buy groceries, altogether proving he knows nothing about voter ID or buying groceries. See, first of all, there are already voter ID laws in 31 states. And even if a grocery store required an ID to buy food, it's not the same as creating an unnecessary hurdle to casting a ballot. Grocery stores are private businesses, while elections are public events open to everyone of legal voting age. Instead, Trump and his co-conspirators are actively suppressing voter turnout by engaging in voter purges, by restricting voting machines in heavily Democratic precincts, and yeah, disenfranchising voters using ridiculous ID laws. I'm using terms like ridiculous and unnecessary intentionally, by the way. The truth is voter fraud is statistically non-existent. The most frequently cited debunking of voter fraud comes from the George W. Bush administration's Justice Department, which conducted a multi-year study showing the rate of voter fraud is roughly 0.0000013%. In Iowa, an investigation conducted in the wake of the 2012 election managed to smoke out exactly eight cases of voter fraud. Most of the cases appear to have been benign. By the way, there were 1.5 million votes cast in Iowa in the 2012 election, which means the rate of alleged voter fraud was 0.00053%. Can you imagine undergoing compulsory radiation and chemotherapy if your oncologist told you there was only a 0.00053% chance you'd die from cancer? Worse, as of this writing, there hasn't been a single conviction. So really, the rate of convicted voter fraud in Iowa is zero percent 
And yet a 2016 Gallup poll conducted just before Election Day showed 52% of Republicans and 26% of Democrats believe voter fraud is, quote unquote, a major problem. It's not. It doesn't exist. Overall, 68% of Americans believe it's a problem. Some say minor, others say major. So naturally, 95% of Republicans and 63% of Democrats support voter ID laws. Confoundingly, 77% of voters of color support the laws, even though roughly half of non-whites think they'll be disenfranchised by the laws. But the Republicans, via their propaganda front, Fox News Channel, convinced enough people that voter fraud is real anyway. Second only to the denial of the climate crisis, this is perhaps the most astonishing example of mass delusion in modern American history. Consequently, 31 states, mostly red states, now require some form of voter ID at polling places to weed out a problem that doesn't exist. In other words, thanks to this nefarious GOP disenfranchisement scam, three-fifths of the nation is required to pay a fee while potentially losing additional wages from lost work in order to vote. And about the aforementioned usage of the word ridiculous? Well, too many of the voter ID laws are, in a word, insane. In Mississippi, for example, the voter ID law there requires that a birth certificate be presented in order to get a photo ID. But a photo ID is necessary in order to attain a copy of a birth certificate. See if you can figure out that Mobius loop of bullshit. Elsewhere in Texas, the voter ID law, which was gratefully overturned by the courts, required voters to have one of six different forms of ID. If you didn't have one of these IDs, you'd have to apply for an election identification certificate, EIC. But in order to acquire an EIC, you'd have to present your proof of citizenship and a second form of identification. In other words, you need to get an ID in order to get an ID. One of the many reasons why this law and too many others was so completely preposterous. Making matters worse, the only way to roll back all of this nonsense is to, yeah, vote. So please do, if you can. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, The Daily Banter, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. Join me with him there each Tuesday. You have 11 seconds, vaginal rejuvenation, and the return of animal stories in the third and final segment up next. What surprised me to learn that two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35 a bald spot pops up, a creeping hairline. And what's that going to look like a year from now or two years? You want to keep the hair you have for as long as possible. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. Pro tip, don't buy the snake oil at convenience stores. Buy the real deal from medicine and science. 4hims.com connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. It also surprised me to learn that 25% of all the new cases of erectile dysfunction are in men under age 40. 4hims.com is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, sexual wellness, and more with advice and prescription-grade medications, not herbal supplements, all at a fraction of the usual costs. No waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and no pharmacy lines. It's all much, much faster, a real time saver. Just answer a few quick questions. The doctor reviews your answers and writes a prescription that comes straight to your door. The website is amazing. Check it out. Right now, my listeners get a one-month trial of hymns for just 5 bucks and save hundreds of dollars on pharmacy visits. Now, that includes a consultation if you want it. See their website for details. This is a very limited offer, so hit pause right now and go to 4 slash BBNC. I'll be here when you get back. In the meantime, I'll spell it. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash BBNC. 4 dot com slash BBNC. We also learned this week that the TSA has had U.S. Marshals tailing travelers who are not on any watch list and not suspected of any crimes. We learned they have been doing this for years, since before Trump was president. The program, now in its eighth year, is called Quiet Skies, and the surveillance is based on travel histories and suspicious behavior like sweating or frequent trips to the restroom. Revelation of the program has raised new privacy concerns for ordinary Americans making routine trips inside the United States. 
In its eight years, the Quiet Skies program has not disrupted any criminal plots and hasn't made a single arrest. There were only 16 people on the government's no-fly list on 9-11. Today, there are over 64,000. But we've also just learned that the TSA is considering ending passenger security screenings altogether at more than 150 small and mid-sized airports. The TSA recommendation says terrorists aren't attracted to small planes because of the loss of life being limited to maybe just five dozen people. Although the airport in Portland, Maine, isn't likely to be included in the TSA's proposal, it is the small airport from which the 9-11 attackers took to the skies. The TSA is also talking about eliminating the aforementioned air marshals program. You have 11 seconds. That's the average length of time a doctor will listen to what you have to say as the two of you begin your conversation. 11 seconds. The doc may then ask about something else or just focus on what you said in that first 11 seconds. A new study shows most patients don't get to the main reason for their visit in that 11 seconds, succeeding only about one-third of the time. The doctors at the University of Florida say doctors need to listen longer and patients need to get to the point more quickly. The study also found that doctors who listen to patients who speak up can save time cutting the length of the consultation and or exam. Also this week, the government warned against vaginal rejuvenation. It's cosmetic surgery for women, often using lasers and the like to remove tissue, to reshape, smooth, and tighten the vagina's appearance to meet pornography's definition of beauty. And it can be dangerous, says the Food and Drug Administration, as it reports numerous cases of burns and scarring and pain afterward, especially during intercourse. The FDA also warns of deceptive health claims about these procedures. Seven companies that make devices for the procedures have been given 30 days by the government to address the FDA's concerns. The FDA has vowed to keep the public informed about vaginal rejuvenation. The Roman Catholic Bishop of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania this week published a list of 71 clergy members accused of sexually abusing children dating back to the 1940s. Harrisburg is one of six dioceses in that part of the country preparing for a grand jury report that's expected to expose more than 300 priests and bishops who knew of this and failed to act. The Harrisburg Diocese is also removing from its buildings the names of former bishops who have been implicated. Pope Francis this week accepted the resignation of Cardinal Theodore McCarrick after McCarrick was accused of sexually abusing minors and adult seminarians for decades. The pontiff suspended McCarrick from public ministry and ordered him to remain in seclusion until his church trial and to spend that time in prayer and penance. McCarrick appears to be the first Roman Catholic cardinal in history to resign over sex abuse allegations. As the former Archbishop of Washington, McCarrick was a member of the Vatican's College of Cardinals, serving as an advisor to the Pope and often traveling on the pontiff's behalf. Pope Francis has already cracked down on alleged sex abusers in Chile. The former Vatican finance chief has been ordered to stand trial in Australia for alleged sexual abuse. The Archbishop of Adelaide was convicted of covering up sexual abuse, and a former Vatican diplomat has been sentenced to five years in prison for distributing child pornography. The good news for CBS CEO Les Moonves is that Los Angeles police have decided not to arrest him. The network's board of directors has decided not to fire him yet. And his wife is standing firmly beside him and says she always will. The bad news for Mr. Moonves is that CBS is investigating the claims by six women of sexual harassment by Moonves as far back as the 1980s when Moonves was an executive at Lorimar. Moonves says that's not who he is today, apologizing for his past behavior. There were times, decades ago, said Moonves, when I may have made some women uncomfortable by making advances. Those were mistakes, and I regret them immensely. CBS stock dropped 6% on this news, but the board is grateful to Moonves for taking that network from worst to first. The scandal comes at a time that Sherry Redstone has been struggling to gain control of CBS. Through her family's company, National Amusements, she already controls 80% of the voting rights at CBS. But Moonves is accused of impeding the careers of multiple women because they say they rejected his advances. 
Quoting Moonves' statement, I always understood and respected and abided by the principle that no means no, and I have never misused my position to harm or hinder anyone's career. It's a much brighter day-to-day at Paramount Pictures. This long-famous movie studio had been pretty much written off as a player in Hollywood, and then it decided to make a sequel of a sequel of a sequel with a star who's now older than Wilford Brimley when he made Cocoon. How could this veteran action star compete at the box office against Marvel superheroes? But when Tom Cruise showed up on the Paramount lot to make a new Mission Impossible movie, everything changed. Even though the Mission Impossible movie franchise is 22 years old and its star, now 56, Fallout is the week's number one movie, opening at $154 million worldwide, $62 million of that in the U.S. and Canada. Moviegoers give it an A. Critics are raving about it, and Paramount Pictures has risen from the ashes. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through the Fandango link you'll find at buzzburbank.com. Why so many Trump supporters and why are they so fervent? Sean Hannity had the number one show on cable in July, followed by another Fox News Channel primetime host, Tucker Carlson. The two of them even beat Shark Week on the Discovery Channel. Back in the real world, a Clinton, Arkansas woman accidentally left her wallet at Walmart, and when she got back, the wallet was there, but the cash was gone. She went straight to the cop shop to report the theft, and a day or two later, she got a call back from the police. They had received an envelope brought by a woman who didn't give her name that contained a note. To the lady that left her wallet at Walmart, please forgive me, as I always strive to have integrity, and that day I failed miserably. A thief's apology and the return of the $160 she had taken. So a man and a gator walk into a store, and the man says, Y'all ain't out of beer, are ya? Dateline, Florida, Jacksonville Division. Robbie Stratton walked into the Safeway Discount Beverage Store and opened with that question about the beer as he carried an alligator in his arms. Is he taking the last bit of beer, asked Stratton, as he chased customers around the store, pointing the gator at them? You aren't taking the last bit of beer, are you? He shouted on the video. Yes, of course, there's video. Jacksonville police aren't sure if Robbie broke any laws, but Robbie says it's cool, saying he knows everybody in the store. He also says he doesn't remember any of this, and he says he has no idea where he got the alligator. Greetings from Florida. The way to distinguish a donkey from a zebra is, on a zebra, the stripes don't rub off. At the Garden Municipal Park in Cairo, Egypt, the zebras on display there appear to be donkeys that have been painted with black and white stripes. The zookeepers have gone on a local radio show morning zoo, perhaps, to testify that they really are zebras and that all of their displays are the real deal. Pictures of the zoo's proudly displayed zebras went viral, prompting a veterinarian to note that the coloration of the face was wrong for a zebra. Others noted that the stripes were smudged. Five years ago, a zoo in China was forced to admit its lion was actually a big fluffy dog. Somebody let the monkeys loose when they stole a lemur from the Santa Ana Zoo in California. We are pleased to learn that this 32-year-old lemur, second oldest in America, has been returned after being located by the cops down in Newport Beach. Isaac the lemur was found in front of the Newport Beach Marriott with a note asking the finder to return the mammal to the Santa Ana Zoo by way of the police. Police are going over surveillance tape to find the lemur lifter and hopefully their motive. Two men in Texas have confessed to stealing a shark from the San Antonio Aquarium. They were found through surveillance video in a local ad for Shark for Sale, and those men now face felony charges. Police say the men knew what they were doing, having put the shark first in a bucket of water and then straight to what they describe as a proper environment. The bucket, by the way, was smuggled out of the aquarium in a baby stroller. And finally, not just animal stories, but stories about animals that got trapped somewhere and then got out okay. It starts mildly enough with the rescue by police in West Virginia of a deer that got its legs caught in a soccer net as it apparently tried to jump over it. The deer's fine. In Colorado, a bear trapped in a storm drain came out through a suburban manhole cover and was chased out of the neighborhood with a single rubber bullet.
He's fine and he won't be back. In Melbourne, Australia, where you kind of expect to see kangaroos, one jumped through a family's window and hopped about doing tremendous damage and leaving its own blood everywhere. And then somehow it locked itself in the bathroom where it stayed until it too could be rescued by animal experts. Locked itself in the bathroom. They're so temperamental. This Australian homeowner was surprised, by the way, telling a reporter, I haven't seen a kangaroo in my life. Now, in Germany, where there aren't supposed to be kangaroos, an all-white one hopped its way into a family's above-ground swimming pool. Police rescued the roo and returned it to its owner, who explained it had gotten out through the hole in the fence. Made by his roommate's goat. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.